Welcome back, everybody. I am so glad you are back here for part two of this episode with Dr. Daniel Ambender. Obviously, I do not have to do a whole introduction again. All I have to say is this is Mental Filter. Does that, does that answer the bulk of those questions? That, answer, that answers a bunch of the questions. How about the being in a position of awe and gratitude and those types of things? Yeah. So the human body is amazing. I mean, you know, you look at two joints and you look at, you, you look at how a knee works and you get this appreciation that the bones have to fit the right contour in order to interact with each other. And when there's a bump or when there's a dent, or when there's an indentation that's not right, the joint will hurt and the joint will get damaged. And that is something that you can see on a macroscopic level, okay? If the muscles aren't attached the right way, the arm won't work. And you see that every day. And in the medical world, you get to see when it doesn't work. And then you appreciate how incredible the human body is. It's just tremendously awesome. But then, you, you, you really start learning about the cellular level. In order for me to take glucose and use it for energy, there are particles that are floating around a cell that are constantly knocking into each other. And like puzzle pieces, they'll eventually hit each other just in the right way and unlock another one of these proteins or another one of these enzymes, which will then bounce around and click into another puzzle piece that will unlock another enzyme. And this cascade happens over and over and over. And that's how I'm able to take glucose or sugar and turn it into energy of the body. And that is something that you can't even see, but you learn about. And then you, you know, as a medical student, you, let's say you're going through your pediatric rotation and you, you meet a child who doesn't have that right enzyme, who doesn't have one of those puzzle pieces. And they just do not process basic things like anybody else does. And you see that that becomes a real problem. And then you just, you recognize how amazing everything has to work like puzzle pieces and how everything has to work continuously. When my daughter was born, before she actually was delivered, they had you know the, the fetal heart monitor on and you could hear the heart sounds. And I know as a cardiologist that if my patient misses a few heartbeats and let's say doesn't have a heartbeat for 10 seconds, they're going to pass out. And so I'm listening to the fetal monitor and just hearing every beat and I'm going like, wow, this beating will go throughout this baby's entire life and it's you know it should and it's not going to stop and it's an unbelievable concept and that beating i know is not just a heart squeezing it's actually so many different heart cells contracting together organized perfectly by an electrical system that's organizing it perfectly like a conductor where the electrical system is being organized by the brain and other stimuluses to say, let's beat now, let's be now faster, let's be now slower. And just this like, it's just so awesome. And obviously this can kind of lead to people develop anxiety, but if you look at it in the right way, it could just lead you to be an incredible awe. And really, again, is one of the ways that you help battle burnout in the hospital, just recognizing, wow, what am I, what am I doing that I'm interacting here, and how can I make a difference, even in just a small system, of what I'm talking about? Wow, I'm sure everyone listening can can hear your passion, and I can hear it, and I can see it. And 
to everyone's each level, what you said was spot on is that from your experiences as a cardiologist, as a medical professional, you have, like you said, the privilege, you have the front seat, you have a front row seat to be able to see so many of on the cellular level, the little tiny level of how so much goes into one heartbeat for one thing to work. That gives you a very unique sense of gratitude that only you, Daniel, has. And everybody myself included, and anyone listening, whether you work in the post office or whether you work in a factory or whether you're an accountant, each of you, each of us has a, I hope if you take the time, and I do this with people all the time, to take the time and try to notice and focus in on what you know. So I know mental health pretty well. I don't even know all mental health. I deal a lot with anxiety and depression and trauma. And there's so many other areas which I'm not proficient in. I don't have a ton of experiences in. And I have a very, very high appreciation for a lot of those things. I used to work for an agency that dealt with domestic abuse. I walked out of that having a tremendous appreciation for having a healthy relationship and having an intact family. Years ago, I used to work in a nursing home. I did pastoral care and worked with geriatric people. I have a tremendous appreciation for so many things that came out from that job. So every single person, sometimes we have to force ourselves. For you, you're fortunate that it's almost shoved in your face. But all of us could benefit from stopping and recognizing what we do have and what my experience has taught me to be even more grateful for because I get to go behind the curtain and be able to see everything that goes into play. Even if you work in an Amazon shipping facility, the operations there have got to be insane. (laughs) The logistics of what goes into, I remember once seeing a cartoon where there was like two men sitting in the middle of a factory. There was a crane holding a package and then there was two boxes, you know, the the outbox and the inbox and it was moving and the guy said, oh, he must have removed it from a shopping cart and it moved it to the, to the stay box and then, oh, he must have put it back. And <laughs> put it in the box. So there's so many logistics that have to go and every single person has that no matter what you do. So that's one thing that I think is tremendously important that you said and valuable. Another thing that you said, which I think is also very important, is the thanking all the healthcare. And I want to reiterate, thank you for bringing that up. So many people are the unsung heroes in this, and it's not, not just the surgeons, not just the nurses, not just, it's, it's everybody. If there's anything that we're hopefully going to learn from this is appreciating all the cogs in the wheel. Everyone is really, really important. The same way, so let's draw a parallel, the same way that you described how in the body, Everything is dependent on each other. And with one thing out of place, it could all go wrong. It can all go hairy. Take that to the macro level as a society, as a community, as a hospital, whatever you're looking at. If one thing's out of place, then everything can come crumbling down. So we get to draw a parallel of an appreciation for all the bits and pieces, all the parts that are very, very important. I'll share a quick story that maybe some people know. And I've said over the story and I've heard it. It's a, it's a pretty cool story. There was, and I'll, I will try to make it brief. There was a famous conductor. I think his name was Arturo Toscanini. And I've heard this said over. Uh, unfortunately, I heard this by a funeral recently. And he was at the end of his career and he was being interviewed. And the reporter was writing a book and it was a privilege to write a book on him or a piece on him. I'm not sure what it was. Towards the end, 
he wanted to come over and record something. And Toscanini said, no, tonight's not a good night. He said, why is that? Well, they're doing this big performance of one of my pieces. It's going to be on radio and I want to listen to it. So he said, the reporter said, well, if I keep my mouth shut, could I come listen to it with you and then talk? He said, sure, if you keep your mouth shut. So he came over. It's a beautiful performance on the radio. And afterwards, the reporter was, that was beautiful. And Tuscany said, no, it wasn't. That was not good. I said, what do you mean? I just listened to the same thing that you listened to. It was a beautiful piece of music. He said, there were supposed to be, I think it was 120 violinists. There was only 119. There was one violinist missing from the orchestra. And the guy's like, come on, man. Seriously. Well, you didn't say, come on, man. But how, come on, really? There's one missing listening through the radio. You knew that there was one missing. But, you know, he kept his mouth shut, as promised. He then followed up as a good reporter would do. And he went to the, the, the house or wherever it was where it was being performed. And he got in touch with the conductor and he asked him how many musicians showed up. So he said, actually, you know, there's supposed to be 115 violinists and only 114 showed up. And he was in awe. You know, his mouth was on, his jaw was on the floor. And he went back to Tuscanini and he asked him, you know, I verified what you said. How is that possible? How did you know that out of the whole orchestra that you were able to realize that one was missing? And he said very simply, he's like, you and I are, you and I are not the same people. I'm the conductor. I created the music. When you were the conductor, you know all the pieces, all the nuances that come into play to make that whole music that you hear. You're just listening to the music. You're seeing the final product. So you get to, to just appreciate and listen to the music. I'm the conductor. I know every single piece, every nuance that goes into it. So I think all of us, to some degree, can have that appreciation. You, from your perspective, having the experience in the medical field in cardiology and internal medicine, and everyone else from their perspective, of we each have the opportunity from our own little perspective of I know something that's unique to me of all the pieces that go into, into this, all the things that go on behind the scene, and every single bit counts. So being in the COVID era, hopefully we will walk away with a better appreciation for all those pieces, not only on the physical level, but on the macro community level. Another thing that you mentioned, which maybe I want to hear more from you, is the being in that position where Hopefully, you're doing your best to help people. But I would imagine that there is a certain level of helplessness at the same time. So on one hand, you take your craft very seriously, and you get your training, practice your skill and your craft, and so on and so forth, and you read up on the research, and you're able to diagnose things and intervene where you can. On the other hand, there's, it ends at a certain point. We're, we're human beings. And so there's a certain level of helplessness of, I can't, I can't do anymore. It's not in my hands. Towing the line of how much is in my control, how much is not in my control. And so maybe you can speak to a little bit that sense and, you know, hopefully you're comfortable talking about this because this is, a, this is a, a challenging thing to talk about, I think, of the level of helplessness when someone's in a procedure or when someone can't help someone anymore or whether someone has to deliver the bad news, like you said, and then attached to that, maybe you can speak of, you mentioned trauma and burnout. I think you mentioned burnout. And there's the idea, which I'm sure you've heard of, is vicarious trauma, of being exposed 
and this is true for my field as well, being exposed to the challenges, the adversities, the never ending chronic problems. So I deal with it on a mental health level and you deal with it on a medical physical level. How do doctors and maybe speak to some of your own experiences, manage that manage not getting to the burnout, having that sense of helplessness of I can't help you There's nothing more I can do, or things not going as you hoped. And there's there's a level of helplessness. And you know, what, what could I do? And then how do we manage that? So you don't get burnt out and you don't have the after effects of vicarious trauma. I know everyone listening, I know I said we usually try not to get too heavy and we sort of made a hard left, but I think this is a really important topic, not only for medical professionals and not only for medical professionals in COVID right now where we're all under a lot of stress, but I think it could be applied to everyone in all the different challenges that they face. So please, Daniel, if you can share a little bit of thoughts on that last thing. No, I'm, I'm really glad you asked this question. Uh, it's a lot to unpack here. So as far as that helplessness I actually, I would, I would counter that we're never helpless. We may not be able to prolong life to the inevitability. And, you know, sometimes disease is going to win the fight. But actually, I think about it very differently. I'll give you three ways, three sources of ways that I learned to deal with this from my family, from movies, and professionally. From my family, my father is a wonderful oncologist. He lives in New York with my mom, and he is just a, 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 just such a wonderful physician and services so many people in the local community that I grew up, but as well as, you know, just across the tri-state area. I always remember growing up getting the present, the bottle of wine, the chocolates, the flowers, you know, different things that patients would just give him out of such appreciation. And I remember the patients coming over for the extra shot or the extra medicine or the extra uh, whatever it was to his makeshift office in the house. And I've seen them give so much appreciation. And then I've seen those presents stop. The, the woman who always made the bread for every week brought it over and it was delicious bread and all of a sudden it would stop. And I knew that she had passed on and I would ask my father about it and he seemed to cope with this so well just by lovingly talking about his relationship with the patients and how he helped them through their last days as well as during the tough times when they were going through chemotherapy. And then on the other hand, I've seen the presence that never ended, never stopped. You know, the wine bottle that came every year, even though I knew that the patient who was sending the wine bottle uh, had passed away years before. And I would ask my father, I said, who's sending you the wine? And he would say, oh, the son or the husband. The family still is so appreciative to the care that we were able to do, you know, give them years ago that they're constantly giving us a gift every year. And I realized that you know, even though my father, quote unquote, lost these patients, he didn't really lose them. He was really able to imbue them and their families with a sense of service that they completely appreciated despite things not ending out with a quote unquote good outcome. That is something that I, you know, I constantly think about how my father dealt with those people. And I ended up not going into oncology, but in cardiovascular medicine, we have very similar situations. Heart failure and in general, cardiovascular disease is a number one killer in women more than breast cancer. It really, really, really lops on a lot of mortality and morbidity on the population. And so I, I unfortunately do see a lot of 
quote unquote negative outcomes, but knowing that I could be there at the end or I could be there through a process is something that I find incredibly uplifting. It really, really, really wears me down. The way I learned about this for the movies is um, from the Patch Adams movie. Uh, definitely check it out. It's a Robin Williams film. Just an amazing uh, I film. Can, I, I, got, I second that. That's a, it's an amazing film. Yes. And there is a, a line that he says that really, really struck me. I never used it on any like uh, med school personal statements because it's a little cheesy to use it. But he said, when you treat a disease, you may either win or lose. But when you treat a person, you always win. Or but when you treat a patient, you always win. I really find that true. You may, quote unquote, lose to the heart attack that's just absolutely devastating. But holding that person's hand through their process, you will always be a winner. I learned this lesson in a professional way from one of my mentors, Dr. Ronnie Hassan, who is uh, just an outstanding interventional cardiologist at Hopkins. And we had a mutual patient who basically had a cardiac arrest and we were thinking about advanced therapies that we can offer him, such as ECMO, which is a mechanical circulatory support to help bring blood flow to the brain and vital organs, even if the person's having a cardiac arrest. This person, unfortunately, was not a candidate for multiple reasons for this ECMO. But instead of Dr. Hassan, when I called him in the middle of the night, instead of him just saying in the middle of the night, no, it's not, he's not a candidate, forget about it. He came in and sat at the bedside and looked over all of the information that we had and looked over everything that we needed to look over. And ultimately, it just was not possible to offer this patient that advanced therapy. Even though the family never got to see all of this thought process, I know that we did right by this patient. I know that we put in our all. I know that we organized and mobilized every team that we would have needed to use if we were going to implement that support for this particular patient. And we end up calling it off, but everybody was there. We brought our A game for this patient. And even though there was a negative outcome, I know from the physician side of things, and I know from the healthcare side of things, that this patient got every ounce of perfect care that he could have possibly gotten, even though he ended up passing away. The, the lesson that I learned from how Dr. Hassan handled this and how he incorporated all, all of the data and how he carefully scrutinized everything that he would need to make that very important decision of not going on to take that next step and offering something that really would have been futile, if not fatal itself. I definitely learned so much about how to approach end-of-life care and end-of-life discussions. And it's something that really helped me really put together a game plan for when I'm in that position where I have to make that call as the attending and an approach to basically strategize about how I will also give every single patient every single thing and every chance that they have, whether it's in thought and process or in holding the patient's hand. That is something that helps prepare me for that. Wow, that's tremendous. Thank you for sharing that because all those three examples are really just a, a tremendous lessons which apply both in the job and outside of the job. And to me, hearing that, all three seem like a great, very healthy reframe of what my perspective is. In any situation, if we focus on what's in our control, then we'll be golden. One of the biggest things that is in our control is what our attitude is, is what our perspective is gonna be, is what our approach is gonna be. So whether it's your dad putting everything or your mentor putting everything into what is in my control. You know what's in my control is how I treat 
this person, not just this patient, this person, how I talk to them, how much time I spend to them, how much empathy or care that I give to them. That's all in my control. What's not in my control is the result. What's not in my control is if they're eligible for X, Y, and Z. So reframing and putting 100%, as long as I put 100% into what is in my control and reframing this person in the same way in Patch Adams, reframing, and things become cheesy for a reason because <laughs> there's truth to them. So reframing them as people, then you can't take that away because I'm doing 100% of what's in my control and I can't not having the expectation of me doing something that's beyond my control. And we all can benefit from that on, especially now, I think with COVID, it's really like shoving this lesson to the, to the surface of what's in my control and what's not in my control. And there's, when is this going to end and what kind of precautions should I do or not do and go there and go here. And I don't know what I should do. Touch my face. Don't touch my knees, whatever it is. There's so much arbitrary, uncertain information out there that it's really shoving this lack of control in our faces and we would all really benefit on, okay, so now what is my attitude going to be? Because that's in my control. What is my perspective on this going to be? And how am I going to approach this and focusing on what's in my control? So those are all beautiful lessons. So a couple more things here, if we can talk about in our time left, I imagine this comes up and this is also maybe it's a personal question and if you don't want to answer it by all means is that when it comes to lots of professions mine included so if you're a medical professional a mental health professional a member of the clergy you mentioned a while ago how it's almost your identity so you know if i'm a nutritionist and i'm out to eat in a restaurant someone who knows me is going to be watching my every bite <laughs> as to how much am I eating? Oh, yeah, you see Shmuel over there, the nutritionist? He's having his, uh, you know, his third dessert over there. I mean, come on, am I able to trust him? What's the separation, actually, between being a medical professional? We sort of have to practice what we preach, sort of, but we're also human at the same time. So, you know, in my world, being a mental health professional, and people might have this assumption, like, he's got everything in order, and he never gets anxious about anything, and that's just not true, because... You know, if I'm pinching myself, I am human after all. But there is some sort of like balance between my professional identity and my personal identity and trying to be consistent. So I'm trying to imagine in the medical world of someone is a cardiologist or someone who's a, an internist or whatever it is, and we see that they're obese, let's say, or their heart is not in good condition. They're not taking care of themselves. So Maybe just speak to that a little bit about that balance between the personal identity and professional identity. No, Shmuel, this is a really important question. And for me, my challenge uh, definitely has been with weight. I have fluctuated over the years, 40 pounds weight fluctuations. Luckily, I kind of have it under control over the last two years. But there have definitely been periods where my weight has been exceedingly high that was a challenge for my health. So... I'll just give you a story that kind of highlights it all. So in medical residency, I had, you know, finished medical school at a certain weight and like during residency because of all the call and everything like that, I would be eating like five meals a day, you know, because I'd be up all night doing these like 24 hour shifts uh, or really like 30 hour shifts. And so I'd be just eating a lot. And so I gained probably like 40 pounds throughout residency, which thankfully I've lost all already. But 
Uh, I'm giving advice to this elderly woman who's probably in her 80s about her diabetes care. And all of a sudden, her daughter, who's like in her 60s, reaches over and grabs my belly and goes, Dr. Ambiter, they call me Dr. Dan, Dr. Dan, what, 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 what are you talking about, about weight loss, diet, what are you going to do about this? And I looked down at my belly and I was like, she's right. So I made a deal with the patient and I said, you know what, you're right. I'm going to just start saying we, we are going to work on our weight. And I realized that it's very challenging to advise somebody if like they're looking at you and you're not practicing what they preach. So I did at that time start a diet and I have been working on it and it's a challenge and there's been ups and downs, but I weigh myself on a daily basis, which is not a medical recommendation, but just something that works for me. Eating healthier is something that has been very helpful and it makes me feel better about giving advice about staying healthy. And I like to run and I don't necessarily need everybody to know that I'm running, but I found a local Baltimore running group that we share our runs on a WhatsApp and I share my run to let myself know and let them know that I hold myself accountable to fitness and exercise. And it's a good way for me to do that. And my running times are, I know that I'm not doing it for pride because my running times are exceedingly slow compared to theirs. But I know that this is my way of letting myself and them know that I think what they are doing with this running is great and I want to emulate them. And it's something that's very important. That's an awesome story, by the way. That's really no. It's really a great story, and <laughs> I think joining. I love what you did there when you said the we. Anytime we're trying to motivate someone, it's very difficult to do it from the outside looking in, and joining with someone, which goes back to we t- we mentioned empathy earlier, and there's this uh, misnomer on what empathy actually is. I would encourage people. I don't know if I entirely agree with every nuance of this video, but there's a very popular Brene Brown video. If you would just Google empathy versus sympathy, there's a little cute short video that talks about the difference between empathy and sympathy. And the basic premise is empathy is really joining with people in their experiences. So the best way to help motivate is to join with them in what they're, whatever they're doing. So if I'm actually doing exposure work, which is a type of work for anxiety, I won't ask them to do anything that I wouldn't be willing to do myself. It's a little unfair. So I will do the same thing with them. And by doing so, actually, we have a better appreciation of how challenging it is. So for you to stick to a diet or running or whatever it is, you know, now we have a better appreciation of what they're dealing with. In a recent episode, when I talked about COVID, I was talking about now the rest of the world maybe has a better appreciation of what it's like to live with anxiety because everyone is on the edge of their seat now. Everyone is dealing with anxiety now. So I love what you did about joining with them and helping motivate them. And then it propelled you to, you know, doing what you want to do. Now for everyone listening who can't see you could very easily mix up Daniel with a Calvin Klein model on the billboards on the, oh, bill- <laughs> on the billboards <laughs> of, of Times Square. So, you know, he's really come a long way. Yeah. I mean, just so the audience knows, I'm not sitting here in my underwear. I have actual clothes on, even though I'm staying home and I was trying to flatten the curve. <laughs> Those are really important and rich lessons, I think, for everybody. Just a couple parting thoughts here maybe that you can you can talk about and we covered a lot and I'm sure we can go on for hours and hours reflecting on control 
adversity, resilience, being positive throughout this whole journey of yours? You know, there's the cliche question of if you can go to your younger self, what would you tell yourself? But I'll ask it anyway, whether it's talking to yourself, your younger self, or whether it's talking about someone getting into that journey now, basically, what would you tell them? What kind of lessons that you haven't shared already have you learned? What kind of advice would you give them? And then what might be just one or two things that people out there, we've already mentioned a couple of them, that people don't know, the regular person doesn't know about being involved in the medical field, the nuance of behind the scenes, something that people don't fully appreciate what it's like to be in this wonderful profession being the medical profession. Maybe there's a myth out there that people assume something, something like that. So what kind of reflections that you would give to either your younger self, someone getting into this profession, and maybe some misnomers that are out there, and we'll try to tie a bow on this after that. Sure, Shmuel, these, these are all great questions, and I'm glad you talked to, what would I tell my younger self? And the answer is, I talk to myself all the time. I talk to myself every day, and I've been talking to my younger self all the time. And let me tell you how that came to be. I started medical school in 2010, and I realized that there was like, it was kind of in style at the time. I don't know if it's still the case, but I think it is uh, just talking to people who are in medical school now for everybody to kind of like talk about how hard it is and how hard this, the training is and how hard the test is and how stressed they are and how this and that. I started talking like that as well and realized that, well, I had like kind of anticipated starting medical school. I just was so excited for it. When I started talking like this, I just started feeling like down always. And I really um, started feeling a stress and kind of a burnout. And now fast forwarding, you know, I've been able to work with medical students, students, train medical students, train residents and train colleagues and be trained by colleagues and attendings and, and the like. And there is a, what your audience may or may not know is that there's this pervasive problem in the medical field and that is burnout. People burn out for so many different reasons and it's real and it results in suicides at times, but it could also result in chronic depression. Burnout is something that's really real. And I, I started feeling myself falling for the burnout slopes back when I was that first year medical student. And then I had a wonderful lecture given by one of the psychiatrists in town, Dr. Hinda Dubin, and she specializes in cognitive behavioral therapy. And she talked about the automatic thoughts and how your brain will have these automatic thoughts. You pass a man on the street, you say hello, they ignore you, and you automatically think less of yourself. But really, the person may not have even have noticed you. They may have been troubled with their own issues. And meanwhile, you know, 20 minutes later, you're still wallowing in this self-pity and you just are having the worst day while the other person has no idea that you're going through any of this. And that's kind of how she illustrated these automatic thoughts. And so I said to myself, what can I do to get rid of these automatic thoughts? And it was that day that I said, you know what? I'm just going to start talking to myself. I can't stop the automatic thoughts, but I can talk to myself. I could say whatever I want to myself anytime I want to say it. And I always look in the mirror right before I leave. And I'm just like, Dan, you are just going to have the best day. And then a couple months later, I heard a professor of medicine talking about his experience. And he said, guys, first year medical school is grueling, but guess what? Second year is better. And second year medical school is grueling, but you know what? Third year is better. And fourth year is better than that. And fifth year is better than that. And every year gets better. And I realized that while each year actually gets more grueling, 
with that attitude and with the way that person kind of stated his whole career trajectory as one year gets better than the next, I recognize that he's saying exactly what I need to be saying to myself every morning. And so basically, that is exactly what I started doing then. And I talk to myself constantly and I say, I'm doing great. And then as I started my hospital experience in third and fourth year medical school and intern year, which is intern year is supposed to be known as the worst. Whenever people would say, how are you doing? I would never, ever say what I truly was thinking. I would always just be like, awesome. Great to be here. It's wonderful to be here. That ended up basically really getting me through all the years of training, just feeling amazing. And obviously there are times that are down, but when you start talking to yourself in that way, you start thinking to yourself in that way. And I ran into a pharmacist who I worked with in the medical ICU a couple of years ago. She is probably somebody in her 60s and has seen medical trainees and medical people, you know, like just like go through their entire careers. She's watched them and worked with them. And she said something to me. She said, you know, you don't realize that you are interacting with a, a different world than everybody else interacts with. Because when you do this like ridiculous, I'm doing amazing, how are you doing? People are feeling better about it, about themselves, about their day, and they reflect that to you. So when you go through your day in the hospital and you start to interact with different people in the hospital, you're seeing a much brighter place than other people see. And she just said, that was something that I saw you do. And that's something that I started doing. And it's really something that I don't think works for everybody because I'm realistic, but I think it was a really, really important tool for me. And I, I really swear by it. That's awesome. I love it. I love it. Automatic thoughts are certainly something that I'm very familiar with. Also being a cognitive behavioral therapist and basically doing your self-talk and how we manage our thoughts. It's not necessarily, like you said, it's not necessarily about those thoughts not existing because we can't control a thought that comes into our head, but we certainly have control over how we manage our thoughts, what we do about our thoughts. And just because it comes in doesn't mean that we have to just accept it as is. So some people might look at you funny walking down the street talking to yourself, but he's fine. He's fine. He's doing some, he's doing some great self-talk for himself. It really works for him. And then this observation of this woman who is great is, is that it spreads. It's contagious. It's not about convincing ourselves that everything is great. You're still realistic, but I am making a choice. This is back to what we said earlier about making a choice of what kind of attitude we're going to have. And you know what? It's my choice that I'm going to be positive today. And then it spreads of when I exude this positivity or I'm choosing to be positive and have a certain attitude, then it gets to the next person, the next person, the next person. And you don't even realize the impact of your choice of having a certain attitude and remaining positive and remaining hopeful and remaining confident, no matter what the situation is, you don't even realize the extent of the impact of how many people it gets to. That's a tremendous lesson, I think, to yourself and to your younger self and to people getting into this profession or really any profession or not, not in any profession, just these, there's so many things that we talked about, which again, the more I talk to people, the more I realized a lot of these things are really universal and they just come in different packages and different flavors and different colors, but we're really very much the same. And if we can learn from each other and learn from your experiences, learn from my experiences, learn from the next person experiences, then we'll all be better for it. Daniel, this was awesome. And uh, people listening to this, I know I said earlier that this was going to go longer. 
what's going to happen is that this is probably going to be part two that you're listening to. So thank you for staying along for the ride. If you do enjoy this and appreciate this, please take a moment. You can subscribe to the podcast. You can rate it. You can review it. You can share it. I will encourage you again to check out Daniel's podcast. Where could they find your podcast? Oh, thanks for asking. So www.cardionerds.com. That's one word. And that will have everything, you know, links and web pages on different topics. We also can be found on Twitter. Uh, you can find me at Dr. Dan underscore MD and also at Cardio Nerds. We'll just uh, stop there. So those are the different places that they can connect. But once they connect to us on any of those platforms, they'll see all of our stuff on all of our content. Check them out. Dr. Dan. Thank you so much. Again, I appreciate your time and your wisdom and your experience. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to be here.